ours is a very work-centered culture, and that's that's not a criticism. It's just uh, it is. I mean, in the West, in America, uh, out here on the high plains, specifically, um, our work becomes our identity really easily. If, if we lived in a, in a more Eastern culture and you wanted to explain who you were to someone, you wouldn't start like we do by saying, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor, I'm a, I'm a farmer, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer. Because that's what we do. And if we want to just explain to someone who we are, we tell them what our job is. Um, it, in, the, in an Eastern culture, we would explain like, what, our, what, what, our, what family we come from, our clan, because their identity is much more in, um, in that. I'm oversimplifying, but you get the idea. Well, this morning we're going to start a new section in the book of Philippians. Paul's going to signal that he's changing gears. And Paul wants to make sure that we know that we are more than what we do. Now, he doesn't mean this necessarily from a job or a career sort of aspect. But it's nonetheless true. You are more than what you do. Your identity is more than what you've accomplished. Your identity is more than what has happened to you. What you do and who you are are not necessarily the same thing. Hey, I see our computer's updating somehow. Hey, there we go. Um, We're going to start a new section, like I said, in the book of Philippians. We're just going to read the first three verses of chapter 3, an extremely famous passage from the New Testament. So many famous verses in here. This is really part of next week's sermon, but it was too long for one sermon. So, you're kind of going to kind of get the introduction to this chapter this morning, because there's some things we have to get straight, or we won't understand the famous parts accurately. So let's read our passage today. The first three verses of Philippians chapter 3. Oops, let me turn my clicker on. There we go. Philippians 3, 1 through 3, read this way. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware the evil workers. Beware the false circumcision. We are true circumcision. Who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. There's our passage. This morning, we start just in verse 1, which really is a difficult verse to understand. First, Paul starts, our, almost all of our English translations start with the word finally, which is a word we use when we're almost done talking, and Paul is not almost done talking. We're like at the halfway point of this letter. 
It's a hard word to translate. It really means like the rest. What Paul is saying, this is his signal that he's transitioning. It's, I've got to move on to some of the rest of what needs to be said. But it's only one word. Um, it can mean finally, but anyway, there's our transition word. And so Paul says, I'm transitioning now. It's time for me to move on to what else needs to be said. But before I do, I want to reiterate the main idea. I'm not getting off the main idea of this letter, which is this. Rejoice in the Lord. That's what the book of Philippians is about. This is Paul's letter of joy. There's there's so many different things we try to use to find our joy. We want significance. We want acceptance. So we try to get our joy in what we can accomplish because that will make us significant or impressive. Um, we try to put our joy in 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 money, in the esteem that other people will give us if we play our cards right. We try to get our joy from excitement, from pleasure, from a million different things. And Paul says, I'm going to change uh, topics a little bit here. I'm going to change directions, but I've not changed the overall topic. Rejoice in the Lord. Get your joy, O Christian, from the fact that before God, through faith in Jesus Christ, if you have believed that He went there under the, the weight of your sin, that the punishment you deserve, God turned from pointing it at you and turned it and fired both barrels of His wrath that you deserve for your sin. He poured it out on Him. If you believe that, then rejoice in this. God has declared you not just not guilty, but righteous in the high court of heaven, before the supreme judge of the universe. He's adopted you into His family. He's written you into the will. You stand to inherit everything Jesus stands to inherit. And you can't lose it. Anxiety always comes from putting our hope in things we know we can lose. Put your hope foundation, the cornerstone, the, the, the seat of your hope and your joy in Jesus Christ, and your heart will know, I can't lose my real joy. That's what makes my hope what Peter called a living hope. It never dies because it can't be taken away. I didn't earn it. I can't lose it. Hallelujah. That's the main idea of the letter. But Paul says, I'm moving on, but everything I'm talking about is still about rejoice in the Lord. Now, the rest of this verse looks forward rather than backward. And what I mean by that is, Paul says, to write this again, he's not talking about rejoice in the Lord, even though he has written that already. I'm going to spare you the Greek lesson this morning. But when Paul says, to write this again is no trouble, he says, what I'm about to say... What I'm about to write, Philippians, I know you've heard me say this before. We may not have heard Paul say this in this letter before, but he knows these people. This is a real letter from a real person to real people. And he says, I'm about to write a stern warning that I know you've heard me give before. 
And when Paul says, that's no trouble to me, don't hear Paul saying, oh, and it's no bother. Don't worry, it's fine. Well, here's what he's saying. I'm about to give a stern warning against a group of people that has caused what most people would consider a lot of trouble for me personally. Paul is going to give a stern public warning in writing against the very group of people, the very sort of people who really have gotten him imprisoned by the Romans. But Paul says, don't think that's trouble for me. It's my ministry. It's important. So I know you've heard me say this before. Philippians, you're going to hear me say it again. And I don't care what the consequences are. It's that important. And it's important, among other reasons, because it's a safeguard for you. You know, very often, what we want and what we need are not the same things. You're aware of that? That's true in churches. It's true in the message preached in churches, too. Everybody wants to hear messages of, of encouragement. Um, lots of people want to hear messages that basically seem like, like everybody's going to heaven. God's happy with everybody. I'm okay. You're okay. So that seems safe. It's not safe. Sometimes what we need is the warning. This message Paul is about to write, this warning Paul's about to write, could cause a storm in the church in Philippi. It's going to shake the beehive. It's going to make some people unhappy. What feels safe is to not give that warning. But Paul says safety comes from heeding the warning. Not from failing to give the warning. Okay, so that's, Paul says, I'm changing directions. I'm still talking about this. Make sure your joy is in the Lord. I know you've heard me say this before, Philippians. And I know it's caused a lot of what most people would consider to be trouble for me and for others. But there's safety in heeding the warning. With me so far? What is this warning that will cause so much trouble? Paul jumps off the top turnbuckle in verse 2 and he says, Beware of the dogs. Beware of those evil workers. Beware of, this English version says, those who mutilate the flesh. Yours might say the false circumcision or something like that. I'll explain why the difference is there. In a second. Now again, Paul just said, you've heard me talk about this a lot. Didn't he just say that? I, I'm going to say this again. You've already heard me say this, Philippians. So the Philippians don't need Paul to spell out exactly who he's talking about. Because they will know. They'll pick up on it right away. You and I may not know. Because we're not first century Philippians. We haven't been told this over and over by Paul. So I, will, I need to tell you who Paul is talking about when he says dogs and, and what his big problem is with these folks. 
The people that Paul is warning the Philippians about, he wrote the entire book of Galatians about them. He, he warns churches about them over and over and over again. Our group of people, this title isn't in the Bible, but people normally call or refer to as the Judaizers. The Judaizers. The Judaizers, this is just my definition on the screen. These are first century Jews who opposed Paul because they believed any Gentile, which is just a way of saying a non-Jewish person like us, any Gentile who wanted to convert to Christianity had to convert to Judaism also. Judaism is the religion of the Jews. So any Jew in Paul's day who did not uh, accept Jesus as Christ, as Lord, as Savior and Messiah, and follow Him by faith alone, still followed the religion of Israel, the traditional religion of Israel, which is Judaism. Follow the law, be good, and maybe God will be okay with you in the end. Okay, that's, that's the Judaizers. Here's the way they sort of came about. Israel had long been waiting on her Messiah which is just a political word for a king that God promised throughout the Old Testament. Well, Jesus shows up. He's from the right family. He's born in the right town. He's got the right sort of pedigree, and he's got the right power. He's a miracle worker, and they don't deny his miraculous power. And so some Jews begin to believe this is the dude. This is the Messiah. Almost all of the original followers of Jesus were Jewish people. But here's the problem. Some of them think he's the king, he's the Messiah, but they don't get like justification by faith alone. They don't understand the gospel. So here's what begins to happen. We can read about this in the book of Acts. First Peter, then Paul, begin to go outside of Israel with the gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And a group of people who are not Jews, or groups of people, begin to believe the gospel. And First Peter and then Paul, they welcome them into this new thing called the church. But they're filthy Gentiles. Like us. They don't do circumcision for the males in their family. They don't follow the weird food laws. They eat pork. They eat fish without scales. They don't do the ceremonial washings. And on and on and on. They don't observe all of the law. And some of these people in the church's first century Jews start to go crazy. Like there is no way we can let those people in here without following all of them becoming sort of Jewish first. That's who Paul calls dogs. Now, it can seem like if we were there on the ground in the first century, we might want to ask Paul, like, Paul, what's the big deal? So what if there are Jews in the church that just want people to follow the law? You said yourself, Paul, in your letter to the Romans, that the law is not bad. It's not. It's perfect. 
So what's the big deal if the Jews just want all of the, the, the Gentiles to have to follow, convert to Judaism first? Well, apparently it's a very big deal to Paul because he wrote about it all the time. There's all kinds of problems that can arise Paul's going to make sure he reminds his friends in Philippi, those Judaizers that want Gentiles to adopt the law, they're not even Christians. They're not. Here's how he says it today. It's pretty easy to spot. He calls them dogs. Not a compliment. Okay, First century uh, Jews, not dog people. Not dog lovers. This is not a term of endearment. This is not all little puppies. No. This is like calling them filthy mongrels. The reason Paul uses that is because this is traditionally the word, the derogatory name that Jews would call Gentiles. This was a way of calling them filthy vagrants. They're not clean like us. Paul turns the tables and he says, I've got to warn you again about the Judaizers. Philippi was predominantly Gentile uh, church. And I think Paul is saying, I know these guys have probably called some of you dogs. I want you to know they're the dogs. Like we're rubber and they're glue and whatever they said to you guys that bounced off you and you know the whole thing, right? They are the dogs. Paul would never say this about a real Christian. Because he would never call a real Christian filthy. Because we are cleansed, we are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ at the moment we place our faith. This is Paul's way of saying they're outside of that. They claim purity because look, we wash this and we cut off that skin and we, we don't eat these things. We're clean. We're pure. Paul says, no, they're not. They're still in their sin. They're dogs. Remember that. It might seem like nice, upstanding people. They're not Christians. So first, beware of the dogs. <coughs> Next, Paul calls them Evil workers. Now wait a second, Paul. How can a group of people who just want to see the Old Testament law followed, how can you call them evil workers? Workers of evil. Well, I think two reasons. First, if the gospel is the only hope human beings have before the God of the universe. And it is, correct? If the only way anyone can be saved is by believing they need a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior, then anything I do that makes it more difficult for someone to believe in that cross is as evil as it gets. If if someone were drowning in the lake and I was out in a boat and I saw them drowning and just decided to like laugh and drive away, would you call that evil? 
All I did was drive my boat. No, I became a barrier to what would save them. Anytime I become a barrier to the gospel reaching someone, that's evil. And Paul would say definitely, these Judaizers are a barrier between the gospel of Jesus Christ and people who need it. We'll talk about why that is at the end. There's another reason Paul could call these Judaizers evil workers. And that's this. I am convinced, apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is impossible for anyone to do something that is ultimately good. And here's how. These Judaizers, they want to follow the law. Their main problem is the problem of legalism. Legalism is just this. It's the idea that I think I can be more in God's eyes through what I do, through good deeds. And if I do enough good deeds, every religion in the world, save for biblical Christianity, if I do enough good things, and I get to the point where my good things outweigh my bad things, God will be cool with me. That sounds reasonable. Correct? So here's what that does to my good deeds. It makes them all ultimately selfish. Because even if I do something for you, if I'm just trying to impress God and get somewhere with God so that when I die, I don't have to go to hell, all my good deeds ultimately are for me. Here's what the gospel does. The gospel, the moment I believe that Jesus Christ died in my place, I should have died that death. He died. He died in my place. That great trade-off occurs. He became my sin. I become His, what's the word? Righteousness. I bear before God the glowingly white righteousness of Jesus Christ. I cannot improve through my behavior on the righteousness I've just been given. And here's what that does. Now I can do something for you knowing what I do doesn't get me anywhere before God that that didn't already get me. Now I can do good things just because I love you, because I want people to, to I want God to look good among the nations instead of me look good among the nations or me look good in front of God. Does that make sense? Now, when I do those good things, will I ultimately be rewarded? And that, that will work its way out. And we can talk about that later. I do believe in eternal rewards. I just don't have time to dive into how what I just said fits into that. But these evil workers, they keep people from believing the gospel and all that stuff they do, that religious stuff they do in following the law, is either to make God like them or to make themselves feel superior to those people they still call dogs. So they're evil workers. And here's where Paul makes sure the folks in Philippi know who he's talking about. He calls them those who, in this translation, mutilate the flesh. Your Bible might say uh, the, the false circumcision or something like that. Really difficult to translate. There's a, there's a play on words that is impossible to miss in the Greek, and you just can't bring it over into English. Uh, I'll do my best here. The Greek word for circumcision is peritome. The Greek word for mutilating 
yourself is katatome. And katatome sounds like circumcision, but it's not. And that's the word he used. So that's why some say the false circumcision. This one says mutilate the flesh. Here's what Paul says. Those dogs, the Judaizers, the legalists, who really are evil workers, they think they're pure, they think they're doing good stuff, but they're still in their sin, and everything they do is ultimately selfish and evil. They think requiring things like circumcision will make God like them. They just as well be mutilating themselves like some weird pagan cult. It's not that circumcision is bad. It's not. But anything I do that I think will get me closer to God, I'd just as well be cutting myself all over the place, bleeding myself out, thinking that God will be happier with me after that. So that's the warning. You've heard me say this before. Paul says, I know people are going to get riled up again, but it's worth it. Beware the Judaizers and the legalists. Now, why is Paul so fired up to put the church, um, to get the church good and warned again against the Judaizers, the legalists? What is the real problem? The real problem has to do with this right here, the flesh. Their real problem is that they the Judaizers, they put confidence in the flesh. A, a real Christian puts no confidence in the flesh. Now we've got some work to do before we can move on in this chapter. Because the flesh is a, is a very misunderstood concept inside Christianity. I think it's easy. Many Christians, I would probably say most Christians equate the flesh with the desire to do sinful stuff. And that's not true. The flesh does not equal my, the desire I have to do obviously sinful, immoral activities. That's not the flesh. It can't be. This passage is a great example of why it can't be. Because the Judaizers, they put confidence in their... What's the word? In their flesh. Do they put they their standing before God has to do with their flesh? Do they put confidence in their desire to do really obviously sinful things? No. No, they don't. They're trying to keep from doing sinful things, aren't they? They want people to follow the law. So what's the flesh? And how is it that people like the Judaizers are controlled by the flesh, even though they're trying to not do sinful things? Here's my definition of the flesh. Don't go looking for this one anyway. This anywhere. This, this, this one's just me. The flesh is just that part of a person who wants what human beings naturally and normally want. That's the flesh. The flesh is that part of me that wants, that desires what any average run-of-the-mill human being wants and desires. Now, can my flesh, those natural, normal desires, 
can they push me toward things that are obviously sinful? Yes. Sometimes if a person wants to be accepted, will that desire for acceptance drive them, push them to do things they know are wrong, but they'll do them to be accepted by some other person? Yes. Sometimes our flesh will push us toward the sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of sins. But that's not the only thing our flesh will push us toward. And this is very important to understand. Just because you maybe never started down the road of those sins, or just because you've gotten to the point in your life where you no longer indulge in those obviously sinful sins that you used to do, does not necessarily mean that you don't live in the flesh. Because the flesh manifests itself in other ways. The most obvious place to see that is in the book of Galatians. We're going to go there. Is Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 23, where Paul writes this. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. What's obvious mean? Just like easy to see, right? The works of the flesh are obvious. Let's just do the ones in underlined in red right now. Here's what it looks like. It's so obvious. You can't miss it. If someone is controlled by their flesh, here's what their life looks like. Sexual immorality, impurity, depravity, idolatry, sorcery, murder, drunkenness, carousing, and other stuff like that. Sometimes we even call those things the fleshly sins. You'll never hear me call those things the fleshly sins because that's only half of the fleshly sins. Sometimes... My flesh, your flesh, all our fleshes can tempt us toward things that look like sexual immorality, impurity, depravity, idolatry, sorcery, murder, drunkenness, carousing, and all those things we have got to get cut out of the church. And you can't be in here if you look like that. Why? Because it's fleshly. But it's only half the list. Because the other half of the list, underlined in green, and look, remember, it's still, it's obvious I'm controlled by my flesh. And my life is being characterized by things like this. Hostilities and strife. You know what that is? It's just like fighting. It's just like, being, I'm going to find the word, I'm going to say the right word of that guy, that's going to shut him up. And when I type that one into Facebook and hit send, woo! People are going to like, wow! Hostilities, strife, jealousy. How come that gal gets to live in a house like that and my house looks like this? And uh, outbursts of anger, that's obvious that you live in the flesh there. Selfish rivalries. You know what? I don't like that person. You know why? Because we're both chasing the same thing and he's a little bit better at it than I am, so I can't stand that guy. dissensions, factions. You know what? Those people we don't like, we can find a whole team of people that don't like the same other team of people. 
And we spend our time talking about those folks we don't like and why we don't like them. And envy. The stuff, the stuff underlined in green is just as obvious a marker that someone lives in the flesh as if they are wasted. It's in the same list. See, when Paul says, you want to know what it looks like when someone's not living in the flesh, they're actually controlled by the Holy Spirit, he doesn't say they don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't chew, and they don't go with girls who do. They don't go to to moving picture shows or play games with dice. Go back to our old roots. He says the person who doesn't live in the flesh is characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Here's why that's important to understand for Philippians 3. If we think the person who is not controlled by his or her flesh is just someone who doesn't sleep around and doesn't drink too much, we're going to miss what the problem is that he's arguing against. Because the Judaizers, the legalists, they don't have a problem, at least that anyone knows about. They don't have a problem with those things. But when Paul shows up and starts preaching about grace, and it goes like this, hey, I, I found a I found a young girl out on the, in Philippi. This literally happened, by the way. Found a young girl in Philippi. She had demons inside of her. Her life's a complete wreck. I cast the demons out. She's a part of the church, and she is just as righteous before the God of the universe as the most mature Christian in here. You know who doesn't like that? The Judaizers. The legalists. The person who has built his or her self-worth on their flesh, which is their ability to be good. Because sometimes, yes, my flesh can desire sinful things, but my flesh can also desire to be superior and better. It's been a long time since I said this one, but it feels better to feel feels better to feel better. It feels better to feel superior. And one sneaky way our flesh tries to do that is like, look, see those people over there? They were down there smoking on Broadway and they may have actually been smoking on Broadway. And I don't even get me started on what they may or may not have been smoking. I wasn't down there doing that. You know how that makes me feel? Better. When Paul shows up and he welcomes that little demonized girl into the church, or here's a prostitute that uh, heard the gospel yesterday and she's just as holy and righteous before God as the most seasoned believer in here, guess what starts to break out in the church in Philippi? Hostilities, strife, Jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish rivalries, dissensions, factions, and envying. 
from the people who want to be good enough by their own efforts in their flesh. So look at how Paul ends this little introduction to this chapter, which is really the introduction to next week's sermon, so please come back. You'll hear the rest of it. Paul says, remember who you are. Paul says, puts himself in the mix with the Gentiles there in Philippi, we are real circumcision. This is so awesome. Those Judaizers who say, you, can't, you shouldn't even be in here unless your family does circumcision. They require circumcision. Paul says, we are circumcision. That's a weird thing to say. Jeremiah 4, we read God saying, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. When Paul wrote to the Colossians about circumcision, he said, you Gentiles in Colossae there, you were circumcised all right, but not in the way they're talking about. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's not the removal of, of a little bit of skin. It's removal of the what? Removal of the body of what? The flesh. By the circumcision of Christ. You know what we're after as Christians? We're not after how good can I be at following the rules? In my self-discipline, in my hard work, and and the accountability I can set up, I'm going to make myself so I am good enough and nobody can ever accuse me and you can't tell me I'm doing anything wrong. You know what we're after? Circumcising, cutting away that part of me that wants what I want and giving over that controlling part of my life to my Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ. If I can get that done, I don't have to worry about the law. I get the law for free. Because if I let him be in control, I don't have to worry about the obviously sinny, sinny, sinful things. I also don't have to worry as much about those things underlined in green from a screen ago. Because he will cut that away from me as well. Remember who you are, Philippians. You are not a group of people who got yourself so good that God likes you now. You are people who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. You glory not in how many sins you didn't sin this week. You glory that you are justified, not guilty, righteous before the judge of the universe. And if you're a real Christian, you are this kind of person. You are someone who puts no confidence in the flesh. Here's why this is important. It reminds us. You are not what you do. 
You are more than what you have done. See, here's the real danger when that legalism takes root in a church. Here's the real danger. First, before long, the people who are in control are the people with fewer obvious unacceptable sins and we only want people in who are like me. Barf. I do not want a collection of people who are like me unless I am like Jesus. What, it, what happens is I want people who meet my level of righteousness. We ignore all kinds of sin. We can't confess anything. And it makes people who really need Jesus hate the even thought of walking through those two doors back there. Because they feel like if that's what Christianity is, I'm like, man, like where I'm at right now, I might, I might have to grow for the next five or ten years before I'm anywhere, so just... It's not that God doesn't care about sin. Please don't hear me say that. He does. But we really feel like who we are is what we do. Listen. Whose we are is who we are. If you belong to Jesus Christ, that's your identity. Child of the King, son or daughter of God. Perfect and righteous. Then we grow in this knowledge that it's really better if I just give him the, the wheel of my life. And I know how hard that is. But that's biblical Christianity. It's not comparing who has the most sin or who has the least sin. We all have sin. And we want to grow. We want to hold each other accountable. We want to uh, become more and more like Jesus. I really, really want that. But we can't put our confidence in our flesh's ability to pull that off. We put our confidence that we are forgiven by, by Him I'm going to walk with Him, and when I mess something up, I'm going to confess to Him, and I'm going to repent of that, and I'm going to be open and honest. And we grow, and we grow, and we grow. If we do that, keep coming back. This is a great chapter of Scripture. Um, Paul's going to tell us about, hey, if anybody had the right to put their confidence in the flesh, it was me, Paul will say. He said, ah, it's all garbage. That's next week. Why don't you pray with me? Father God, um, we do build a lot of our identity about what we do. God, I want you to press into our hearts. We are more than what we do. We are more than what we have accomplished. We are more than what we have done. We are more than the terrible things that have been done to us. If we believe in Christ Jesus, we are your kids. We are co-heirs with Christ. God, help us to not put our confidence in our flesh. To 
open ourselves up that you might circumcise away that body of flesh that wants what I want. Make us into people who want what you want. Then our behavior will change and you will get the credit when you shape us into who you want. And that we might welcome those who have a real and obvious need for Christ, which is rivaled only by our need for Christ. We love you, Lord. Grow us, stretch us. Help us not put our confidence in the flesh. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and we will finish.